I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? I Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged of Reclaiming the Mind Ministries, or Credo House Ministries. I'm not sure which one we are at this point. (laughs) You're letting the cat out of the bag, but we are in the midst of a name change that we will be slowly trickling out. And uh, And, and if we changed our mind, then just Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. (laughs) Either way, welcome Theology Unplugged. I'm Michael Patton, joined by Tim and Sam, Tim Kimberly, Sam Storms. It is great to have you guys uh, join us here in studio at the Credo House in Edmond, Oklahoma. And we are going to continue our discussion today with Sam about uh, some of this Christian hedonism business, Mm -hmm. uh, which I termed last time Christian selfishness. Could we go in that direction? He said no. Yeah. Well, selfishness is just such a, has such negative connotations. Well, but so does hedonism. And I was just trying to be like them, you know, being able to, you know, be unplugged. And if you want to be me. original and scandalous, you got to come up with something that a little That was my bit. hedonistic way of describing the broadcast, and I got shot down. Okay. I'm sorry. You. <laughs> I'm sorry that I made you feel less pleasure in all right, uh, all right. my that, statement to you. We're good. We're good. I'm uh, being a Christian hedonist. I also uh, forgive very easily because I know that brings me the greatest pleasure, so I forgive you. Wow. You're really humble. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um Anything coming up here uh, with Reclaiming the Mind Ministries? We've got Christmas coming up real soon. Uh, best thing, I think, for Christmas for anybody, you know, to fulfill their hedonistic desire of Christianity is to get the theology program, get uh, boot camp, mm-hmm. uh, look on our schedule, get somebody enrolled in it coming up real soon. Yeah, but, folks, uh, well, great we're, present. We're at an exciting time in, in the ministry, too. We are hearing a lot of people give feedback just on the content of the studies that uh, that we're doing right now, that it, it really is leading people to think about God in ways that they never have before, and uh, that stirs their belief and stirs their faith, and that's why we exist. Well, good. Stop by here in the Credo House. We've, we've got a, a new coffee. It's a Christmas coffee. Tim's going to develop it, and you know, it's, it's really special. I'm not going to tell you the name until you get here, but it's the Christmassy coffee. <laughs> Thank you. I will take that as a cue to develop a Christmassy coffee. <laughs> That's, that comes right on the heels of our uh, of our um, uh, Halloween coffee that you've been doing. Yes, our pumpkin spice. <laughs> so anyway, well, I will uh, rescue We do broadcast. have the best coffee in Oklahoma, right? We do. Well, so we had someone stop by the Credo House yet, or last week. Who has worked at a very snobbish, is snobbish the correct term? A very snobbish coffee shop. I'd say hedonistic coffee shop. Okay, well, yeah, yes, a coffee shop that that finds great pleasure in their own coffee offering and is known uh, statewide, I would say, as being a top tier coffee shop. She has worked there for five years, and I had the pleasure of making her a Luther latte, putting it before her. She took a sip and said, now granted, she didn't say as much as she could have. We could have liked uh, her to say a bit more, but she said she feels like this is the second best latte in the Oklahoma City area. And so, uh, yes, she did not say the first 
or the top, but she did say it was better than the place that she works. And so there is a another one that has been generally accepted as the number one coffee shop in the state of Oklahoma. But she said that we were number two. Well, which, by, by which the time you great. listen to this broadcast, we will be number one. Especially with this new Christmassy drink that I'm developing. <laughs> so we will I'm, that will propel us into first place. Okay, Sam, we're talking about Christian hedonism. Some people are just joining us for the first time. Hedonism. I, I'm looking it up on, on Wikipedia, the the authority of all things, and it says uh, hedonism is a school that argues that pleasure is the only intrinsic good. This is often used as a justification for elevating actions in terms of how much pleasure and how little pain, i.e., suffering, they produce. In very simple terms, the hedonist strives to maximize this net pleasure. And pleasure minuses pain. And I would simply say that Christian hedonism seeks to maximize pleasure in God. I mean, that's the the definitive difference. If you make the pursuit of pleasure your ultimate uh, aim in life, if the criterion that you employ by which to uh, determine will I do A or B, uh, is whether or not it will bring joy or a rush or a physical sensation, then you're a secular hedonist. But if the decision, the criterion of the decision is, what will maximize my capacity to enjoy God, to see him, to be thrilled, to be captivated by who he is, um, then uh, I would say that you're embracing Christian hedonism. So again, it's it's not the question of whether or not we desire pleasure. All people desire pleasure. Uh, you know, Blaise Pascal used to had a very famous statement once when he said, uh, all, all mankind desire pleasure, even those that hang themselves. And his point was that even the person who's fallen into such misery that they commit suicide is ultimately doing it out of a pursuit of pleasure because they're convinced, wrongly, but convinced that death will be more beneficial to them than life. Uh, they're ending their life because they can no longer stand the absence of the pleasure for which they so desperately long. Mm-hmm. So it's a question of uh, do we understand that God has made us this way precisely so that he might be revealed and displayed as the one alone in whom we can find the pleasure that our hearts desire. You've talked a lot about Christian hedonism. You wrote a book uh, or edited, co-edited a book with Justin Taylor for the for what, for the it? fame of God's name, for the fame of God's name, a uh, tribute to John Piper, in which uh, many authors contributed to. How many authors again? Twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. Authors. By the way, can I just say something we didn't say in the first two sure. segments mm-hmm. on this, uh, just so people know? Um, Justin and I receive absolutely no royalties from the sale of this book. Um, the contributors were given a very small amount of money for writing their chapters. Every penny that is uh, that comes from the sale of this book goes to the Desiring God Foundation. So we're pouring all of it back in to the ministry. That John it doesn't go to John. It goes to making uh, materials available um, throughout the world and to, 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 for the benefit of the church. So it's just important that people know that, which is mm-hmm. what John would have wanted. Yeah. Um, uh, quickly. Uh, Martin Luther, I, I, I don't know if this story is apocryphal or not, 
Uh, I've told it many times. I think it represents the spirit of the Reformation quite a bit. But whenever Martin Luther, during the Great Reformation in the 16th century, was was making one of the great proclamations of the Reformation that justification is by faith alone, and the institutional church of the day was coming to him saying, hey, the, we've got problems with this because, in, in essence, what they said to him was that if all a person needs to be justified is their faith, then they're going to go out and do whatever they please. And Martin Luther said, that is true. Now what pleases you? Mm-hmm. That, 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 uh, that's Martin Luther's Christian hedonism, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And he was a Christian hedonist, even if he didn't <laughs> use the language. Talk about a man who understood uh, the pursuit of pleasure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, the idea is with a Christian, our pleasures, we, we, we will want to fulfill them, but our pleasures will be have a different delight in God, and that's what you're saying. Yeah, the Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the pleasures of your heart, or the mm-hmm. desires of your heart, I shouldn't be more accurately to describe it. Well, Sam, we wanted to take this uh, podcast a little bit and direct it towards you, because uh, you this book that you co-edited uh, was directed towards a tribute to John Piper because he reflects that, uh, that praise or that direction uh, to his God, and uh, we know that you do the same, and uh, that many people listening to this broadcast um, and people that I know as well personally would say we should write a tribute to Sam Storms because of his uh, he's already given me funny looks but uh, because Sam would embody this in many ways as well and uh, you know with the enjoying God ministries and uh, him writing on Christian hedonism part of it is not just because he knows about it but because uh, he lives it out and many people would say well how does he do that as we listen to him speaking about John Piper's life and his pursuit and when we look at uh, hearing people like Sam who seem to be uh, growing in this as, as we want to as well I, I think it would be really good just to hear from you from a practical standpoint because you live in a real world just like we do in a world where it seems sometimes very difficult to find our pleasure in God outside of our pleasure of things or accomplishment or success, all of these things that we can seek to find our pleasure in. Uh, Sam, just I think it would be really beneficial to share just what does your life look like on a daily basis? What is your routine? Do you have a traditional quiet time? Uh, you know, how do you, after, uh, after many decades, really, decades of living with God and seeking to grow in your pleasure of Him, how on a daily basis does that look like? What does that look like in your life? My goodness, uh, that's quite a question. Um, I, I don't know how comfortable I am in answering it, but I'll try. I don't know how competent I am in answering it. Uh, I would say right from the start, um, something that I hope will be an encouragement to most people and that is that um, it's not a question of some secret formula. It's not as if some people have um, discovered, you know, five steps to maximal joy, and um, you know, or seven uh, formula f- formulas for um, conquering sin. It's my answer to this is going to sound really basic and almost routine. I don't know that I can give answers other than the ones that Christians have been giving for centuries when they read the Scriptures and they see what God tells us to do and what he tells us to avoid. 
Um, just in terms of, of, of life in general, my routine, you know, part of it's a little, a little bit different from many of those who are listening to this because, um, my children are grown and married and out of the house and, you know, I've been married for 38 years. Um, and so I, I'm, I have the freedom and the flexibility to do things perhaps in ways that others don't. Uh, you ask about, you know, traditional quiet time. Uh, this may shock some people, and probably uh, I need to repent of this <laughs> and change it, but I, I have never developed what you would consider to be the, the traditional quiet time, getting up at 5.30 or 6 or 6.30 and spending 30 minutes reading the Word and praying. I think I probably should, but over the course of my life, and I think this really began when I first went to Dallas Seminary in 1973, I read uh, a little article by B.B. Warfield about um, a little essay that he wrote for theological students, and it greatly affected me because it challenged me to embrace the fact that um, every minute of every day, whether I'm uh, exegeting um, a, a biblical text or I'm praying or I'm interacting with people, that it is to be done devotionally. That I, I just have a very hard time separating, for example, uh, reading of a theology book from devotional life. If, if I can't read deep theology devotionally, then it's of no use to me. Um, and my most intimate and, and uh, uh, sweet times with the Lord, so to speak, have to be grounded in the deep revelation of who he is as found in Scripture. So I've never been able to separate in my own experience uh, what I would call devotional private moments with the Lord from reading a commentary on the mm-hmm. book of Romans. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I'm preparing messages, and I've been preaching since 74 uh, regularly in pastoral ministry, every preparation of a message is done not with simply with a view toward let me understand the text and communicate it clearly so I can impress the people with my preaching skills, but hopefully reading it and praying through it in such a way that it's changing me at that very moment. So, you know, my prayer, my approach to prayer is uh, I try to permeate the whole day with it. Uh, I'm, I'm probably far more the sort of person who, who prays while I'm driving in my truck down the, down the road um, or throughout the course of the day or you know, sending those little brief petitions up to God or those expressions of gratitude and love. Um, certainly there are seasons in my life when I want to devote myself more to prayer. Maybe there was a time when I was far more consistent in fasting than I am now. Um, so I'm not saying that it's wrong to have a devotional time. I think people have it. I say, please continue. Do not change. That's how God has wired you. Do it. I probably should do it more. But I, I, I try to approach each day as if the totality of all that I do is immersed in prayer, is immersed in a sense of the presence and the nearness of God, is immersed in the awareness of his grace to me in Jesus. Um, other aspects of daily life, uh, I spend uh, a lot of time reading. Um, needless to say, uh, I spend many, many hours, even after 36 years of pastoral ministry, in sermon preparation. And, and a lot of my sermon preparation is long after I finished a message, and I think I have it all together, 
I'll I'll just run it over in my head over and over and over again and and looking at the text again and asking new questions of it and praying that the spirit of God will shine some new light uh on on what I'm trying to understand and new ways of making it clear to the people and challenging their lives in the light of it. So a lot of my daily experience is built around the study of God's word, uh, trying to memorize it when I can, uh, getting it clear in my head as to how I'm going to communicate it to people. Um, So it it seems to me that someone who's not in sermon preparation, Mm -hmm. who is an accountant at a Fortune 500 company or is a stay-at-home mom or whatever, it seems to me like one thing I hear as a big picture is that you seem to meditate on Scripture quite a bit. Yes. Uh, That seems to be that and uh, just this air of breathing prayer, kind of, that as it comes to you, you, you're praying throughout the day. You're not just saying, well, I'm going to sit down for 10 minutes and pray. I'm going to read the Bible for 10 minutes, and then I'm, I'm off for my day but you're you're chewing on the word quite a bit uh, in your daily routine for the last 30 plus years yes and i think people who a housewife or a guy who's leading a fortune 500 company can do the same mm-hmm. they can have if the word of god is embedded in their hearts it, it they can feed on it throughout the course uh, of daily life as much as a pastor who's sitting in his study trying to figure out a way to communicate it to, to people on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night. So, you know, the, the, the principle in Psalm 119 and verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? Or verse 11, your word have I treasured up in my heart that I might not sin against you. And uh, for people who find Scripture memory difficult, just taking one verse. I mean, Psalm 1611 is my life verse. And I, I've spent more time thinking about that passage than any other. And anybody can memorize Psalm 1611. Thou hast made known to me the pathway of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures evermore. And if I really believe that, and it really does come down to an issue of just do I actually believe that that's true? And if you do, you will find pleasure in him. Yeah, You'll be a Christian hedonist. Yeah, if I actually believe that in, that in the pursuit of God and, and, med- and the fellowship with him, there is a fullness of joy that I can't find in any other worldly or fleshly endeavor. If I honestly believe that God offers me pleasures that will never lose their capacity to enthrall my heart, captivate my mind, energize my body, my spirit, if I really believe that, then when I'm confronted with the alternatives that the world and the flesh and the devil bring my way, I will find a strength that I otherwise wouldn't have to say no. Um, so, you know, the idea that, that the way that you uh, develop and grow in your relationship with the Lord is that you're confronted with a temptation and you grit your teeth, you clench your fist, and you shout no at it. Although that's good, I hope you would, that's not sufficient. That won't sustain the human heart. Because when life is hard and, and it's gray and maybe boring or outright disillusioning, the power of that temptation as it comes back will increase if you are not strengthened by the pleasure that is found in knowing Christ. Well, sounds, sounds like... Um... I, I, don't, I, th- I don't know how long ago it was. it was. Ronald Nash died back in 2004, I think. But he was a philosopher at Reformed Theological Seminary, and, and uh, he, he defined free will 
in a very particular way. You know, what is the what what are you capable of as far as your will is concerned whenever you're confronted with a uh option uh to sin or not to sin and he said that free will is defined like this, the power to choose according to the greatest desire of the moment. The greatest desire of the moment will dictate whichever path you take. He was reading Jonathan Edwards because that is, in, in a nutshell, the, the summation of Edwards' treatise on freedom of the will. Mm-hmm. Well, he, your, your pleasures, if you don't believe that at God's side is the greatest pleasure, then there will be a greater power at the moment that is greater than, at that point, your choice of God. That's why, when we're going back to respond to Tim's question, we must be very deliberate and conscientious in cultivating a lifestyle and habits and routines that serve to maximize our joy in God. Um, you know, people, I'll give you an example from a very famous passage, uh, Hebrews 12, where you know, we're told that we're to lay aside every weight, lay aside the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And people often ask, uh, when it comes to a particular practice or an activity or a, a decision, they say, well, what's wrong with it? You know, why can't I do this or go there or watch that or listen to this? And and the question is, what's wrong with it? And it seems to me the question we ought to ask in light of this passage is, will it help me run? Not so much can I list reasons why it might fall outside what is legitimate for a Christian to do, but rather ask the question, is that activity Is that music, is that movie, is that TV show, is this relationship, whatever it might be, going to diminish my capacity to treasure and to prize and to know Jesus, or is it going to intensify and expand it? Is it going to help me run the race? Not, can I just not come up with reasons why, uh, or, or can I come up with reasons why I shouldn't do it, but... Why should I? How is it going to maximize and intensify my pursuit of God? So, you know, when people are asking, trying to make, they're deliberating, trying to make decisions on um, uh, in the course of daily life about something, stop and ask the question, is this going to serve to enhance or to diminish my capacity to enjoy God? Now, if I don't know if something would come to mind, but is there an example that you'd see in your life looking at the last 30-plus years of your ministry where you would say, you know what, I wish I made some decisions that now I would go back and change because I felt like it didn't maximize my pleasure with God? Yeah, I'll give you one. Um, and again, this is I, I don't want to come across as if I'm passing judgment on the decisions of others in this regard. Mm -hmm. But um, I have always been um, a a movie fan. I love going to movies. I've always enjoyed them. And I look back on years of of, uh, attending films, and I wish there were uh, many that I had never gone to. And I I typically would justify going um, uh, on the basis of saying, well, this is going to educate me about 
how people think. It's going to expose me to the trends in culture. It's going to reveal dimensions of life that otherwise I wouldn't know. And I need to be able to appreciate um, uh, a, a more robust view of what it means to live in this world. You know, all, all sorts of, um, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to be an isolated, um, dull, uh, uninformed individual and don't and don't not, use the f word yeah fundamentalist <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I don't want to and i'm not advocating that we live isolated lives I, you know i don't i think gnosticism is a horrific error into which we can fall the idea that somehow the created world the material uh things of life and the basic joys of daily existence are somehow wrong and we're to run away from far from it God, you know, Paul says if things are received with gratitude, then we are to enjoy them to the glory of God. But I think that uh, I was not as discerning as I should have been, and I think there were things that, and all of us know what I'm talking about, uh, and I'm not talking about the necessary rating on a film, but I'm asking the question, is this, is it a mindless pleasure as a way of just, you know, you know, cutting loose and relaxing for two hours and spending time with friends, there's. I understand that that drive, that inti- that motivation. But I think the bigger question is: Am I going to walk away from this with a greater appreciation for the grace of God, with a deeper understanding of what the gospel is and what it means for me? And I think probably I would have been if I could go back and do it over a little bit more discerning. I find myself walking out of more movies than I actually watch. Mm. I mean that seriously. Sometimes I just flat out get up and leave and then my wife says why did you ever go in the first place did you ask for a refund because you can get one you know and i say no i just leave um so again i'm still i still love movies i still love film but um i'm trying to be a little bit more discriminating the same thing goes with television the same thing goes with our my uh, my love for athletics and sports uh, because i allowed it to dominate and control my emotional state far more than i ever should I know about that, um, but after after it, we all had the same reaction as Star Wars Phantom Menace, all right. But that was because <laughs> of how you know it just didn't glorify God in the way that it was made. But we're, I'm there. I wish I would have seen it too. Yeah. Well, and one question for you too, Sam. In addition, is I think a lot of people sometimes will point to those failures in their life or those things where it seems like God has knocked them down, that God, it seems like, doesn't even want them to feel pleasure because they might look at someone like Sam Storms or John Piper and say, well, uh, I'm sure that their bank accounts are pretty secure. I'm sure that you know God has gifted them in, in great ways. And, and look at all, of course, they're finding pleasure in God because look at how God, almost this, this Job idea of, well, look at how much God is blessing them, as Satan would say, of course he's going to worship you because look what how God has blessed him. Well, God hasn't blessed me that way. You know, I'm selling cell phones at a shopping mall. I feel like a failure and all of these different things. And, and could you speak into that a little bit? Because I know that, that a perception of you is not necessarily true. You have certainly had failures as well. Like how do you, if you want to share a specific example, but how do you look at those failures where it seems like you're getting knocked down and grow in your pleasure of God? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I I heard someone, a colleague of mine at Wheaton, who will remain an anonymous, who once said that he, that he believed Christian hedonism was a philosophy for white middle-class Americans. Hmm. And I thought, oh, he has no idea 
what Christian hedonism is, at least in the way that I understand and the way that John has articulated it. The people who are the most robust and godly Christian hedonists are those who are living in uh, intense suffering and deprivation, precisely because they have been compelled by circumstance to learn that God is enough. When everything else is taken away from you, when your dreams have been shattered, when uh, your bank account has been depleted, when your body is um, aching uh, and suffering from chronic pain or a terminal diagnosis, when friends have betrayed you, when you look to your right and your left and there's nobody there, that's when you learn most forcefully and powerfully that God is enough. Um, You are my only good, David says earlier in Psalm 16. What have I in heaven but you and on earth? uh, The psalmist declares it's this... It's when people experience the greatest deprivation and persecution and hardship, I think, that they are um, enabled, if they believe what God says of himself to be true, to find a deeper satisfaction because, quite honestly, there isn't anything left. There are no other props on which you can... Uh, hold yourself up. There's there's only Jesus, and you know it might sound pious to say, "Well, yeah, uh, you know, Jesus minus the world is is enough. It's still Jesus. I still have everything." But you say that because you've still got a lot of the world. You've still got a lot of the perks, the pleasures. You've still got a lot of the uh, benefits and the the luxuries, and you're you're healthy, and you don't have to worry about paying the bills each week. Um, and I know that mentality, but um, I still believe that it is in the midst of the heartache that many of our listeners right now are experiencing and the fact that they didn't get the job they wanted and that they don't feel as if God has enriched them in a way that he has others and they're wondering, um, does he really love me? And it it really does come down to the question, and, and I hope this doesn't sound dismissive or insensitive. It comes down to the question, do we understand the cross? Do we understand the reality of Romans 8, that he who delivered up his own son for us, how will he not together with him freely give us all things? And we say, well, what are those all things? Well, it's all things necessary to enrich our hearts, to uh, enable us to live not above trial and heartache and disappointment, but through the midst of it, and say, I have Jesus Christ. I have all that I need. Um, yeah, I've experienced some, some, some real heartache. I mean, my older daughter went through a very, very painful divorce. And um, when you teach and preach uh, a view of Christian marriage and divorce and remarriage, uh, as I had for all those years, and you call people to um, a certain way of living, and then your own child is forced into this in a way that was very painful to her. Uh, she fought for her marriage for years, and um, then you start asking yourself, where did I fail? Where did I go wrong? What decisions did I make I should have reversed or Uh, How did I influence uh, her in a way that might have contributed to this problem? And um, you find yourself, uh, money in the bank doesn't 
amount to jack squat. <laughs> and uh, health uh, matters very little when you feel like you have failed uh, your own child and you've somehow contributed to their uh, the dissolution of their marriage. Um, and if I, unless I can come back consistently and faithfully to the reality that in Christ I have all I need, that um, God has freely given me all things, um, and that those things might not be that my daughter's marriage would survive. Uh, and it might be for many who are listening, um, you know, a diagnosis of cancer, uh, or it might be um, unemployment that's now extended into a year to a year and a half and an inability to provide for your family. It's not to minimize the hurt and the pain that those experiences bring. It is simply the question, uh, what's the alternative here? Uh, I can either conclude that God is a liar and that he's promised these things and he failed to come through on his word, or I can believe um, the, in the sufficiency of the cross and all that I have in the gospel and that, like Moses said in Hebrews 12, or what is said of him, I am looking to the reward, and I do believe that enduring the reproach of following the Messiah is of greater pleasure and is a greater treasure than all that Egypt or this world can possibly offer me. It's universally available. I mean, that's wonderful what you're saying here. I mean, in the end, it's available to all people because whenever we don't have anywhere else to go and somebody, so many of us don't have anywhere else to go, and that's sometimes the best place to be because you have to turn towards, towards that one who is stable and where else do we go, you know? Well, look, I hope people have an opportunity to read the interview of Johnny Erickson Tata in the most recent issue of Christianity Today. It's, you can find it online, and most people who know about Johnny would look at her and say, why in the world should this woman remain faithful to the Lord? 17 years old, and she dives into the Chesapeake Bay and breaks her neck, and she's a quadriplegic for the rest of her life and lives in constant pain and now recently is diagnosed with breast cancer. And she is, what in the world would sustain somebody who has to get up every day and face the next 16 to 18 hours in that condition and deprived of the simple joys of walking. Um, and and you, if you were to ask Johnny, she would point you to the sufficiency of the cross and all that she has in Jesus and the knowledge that her sins are forgiven and the joy of his constant abiding fellowship and the realization that she has an eternity in comparison with this this blink of an eye, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, you know, the, we consider the, the trials uh, of this age nothing to be compared with the glories that are revealed to us, that the momentary light affliction that we suffer now is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Do you believe that? Do you, in the final analysis, believe that there is an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses the momentary light affliction of the present life. Johnny and, does. And even through her affliction, people would say she is a pleasure to be around. Exactly. She is a joy because she's finding her joy in uh, things outside of her, her body. Exactly. Well, we've been talking about Christian hedonism, folks, uh, with Sam. Sam has uh, written a chapter in a book uh, to the fame of God's name. 
tribute to John Piper, edited by himself and Justin Taylor. And it's been great to to dig a little bit into that. Dig first a little bit into the life of John Piper, and then try to understand what this whole idea of Christian hedonism is. Which, which uh, it, it just you know, whenever it's all boiled down, it is the finding our greatest pleasure in God and understanding that the things of this world that seem to have the most pleasure don't. They're, they're not the way we are created. Sam, thanks for taking the time to discuss this. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, until next week, on behalf of Tim and Sam, I'm Michael, and this is Theology Unplugged. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.